going to be speaking from the book of Ruth, which is a small book, so it might be a little bit difficult to locate. Uh, if you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew, it's page 208. It's the seventh book of the Bible, so if you start at the front, you can kind of count your way forward. Or there is a table of contents there, and the design of it is to find the page where the book is. So don't be ashamed to use that uh, in order to find it. For Ruth, is the, the book we'll be reading, and I'm going to read at verse 1 to get it started. We'll read the first five verses, and then we'll, then we'll begin. So I'll ask you to stand with me if you're physically able. I know that some are not, but if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand with me as we read the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. There were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This direct prayer. Lord, I ask that you would help this morning. We're just people who need your grace and your in our lives. There's nothing special about this. There's nothing that we can say about ourselves to commend ourselves to you, except that we are needy and you're a gracious God. And you work on behalf of people who recognize the need to your son Jesus. And so I ask this morning as we dive into your word, I pray that it would be clear, that it would be helpful and hopeful for us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you. Israel. None of them actually ruled the, 
whole of Israel, but there would be some kind of a flash of trouble and this particular judge would rise up and assist the nation of Israel and, and bring victory. And so to describe this, this situation where it's kind of in between Moses and Joshua, not yet to the kings and these judges ruled, there was a period of about 400 years. It didn't start out this way. But over the course of time, over the decades, over the years, the period became one that was marked by political upheaval, moral decay, and spiritual declension. There's a cycle that develops inside of the book of Judges, and as you read the book of Judges, it's very clear that it's a cycle of rebellion where the nation of Israel will rebel against God and begin to worship other gods. And then God will bring judgment in, in hopes of bringing them back to Himself. And then the people would repent when it got bad enough for them. And then God would restore them. But then they would forget and start this cycle all over again. And it would be judgment and repentance and restoration and rebellion and judgment and repentance and restoration. So the nation and the families that were inside of that nation convulsed under the chaos of the times. Because it was a chaotic time. It was chaotic because everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges describes it. No one was uh, responsible or accountable to anyone outside of themselves, or at least that's how they saw it. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it wouldn't be very difficult at all to draw a direct line from the book of Judges into the United States in our own time. In our day, so many do what is right in their own eyes with little regard to anything that, that the Bible speaks to. And as a result, we too are marked by political upheaval, moral decay, decay, and spiritual declension. All of that is true. And there's a time and a place to address the sins of a nation. But this morning, that's not what we're aiming for. We want to focus on this one tiny little family that was in, living in the middle of the chaos of that nation. And we want to kind of try to answer this question, how can a family caught up in the chaos of a nation live happily ever after? I read to you just a while ago from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And he gave to us this story about how a famine had arisen in a portion of Israel. It was a result of the rebellion and the judgment that God brought. Interestingly enough, it says that made a Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons left out of Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem meaning house of bread. And so they left the house of bread in the time of famine and went down 50 miles away by foot. So it was a long journey over treacherous territory headed down to the nation of Moab. And then in Moab, they lived there a little bit of time and then Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. And so she's left without her husband but but with two sons. Her two sons married, married Orpah and Ruth, but over the course of ten years, then both of the sons died as well. So we find Naomi in heartache. Ruth actually is called later in the book, called the widow of the dead. So that's where we find them at the end of verse 5. Heartache, sorrow, loss. <clears throat> Then in verse uh, 6, if you'll read it there, it says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, because she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with me. Uh, I'm sorry, as you have dealt with the dead with me. The Lord grant that you may find grace to each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, No, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sunk in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go to your women. For I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have a husband, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore remain, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against you. Then they lifted up their voices and went to them. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And Ruth said, See, and she said, your, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from the Lord. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi makes her way back towards Bethlehem, having heard that the food was there and she could go back. And so she goes back and you heard the story, so Orpah goes back to Moab, and Ruth insists on staying with her. But when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, the people are surprised, and they're asking, is this Naomi? It's only been 10 or 15 years, but the hardships have taken their toll, toll and they don't quite recognize her, but then they do. But she says, don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant or delightful, sweet. She says, she says instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. And that's how she saw herself. Once sweet, a lot of good going on in her life, a husband, two sons. And now there's been a change in life situation and she sees herself as bitter. And that's how she saw herself, but how she sees the Lord you will have picked up inside of the, the verses that are read to you, but the circumstances of her life were such that it made her doubt what God was about. Circumstances can dislodge our belief in God's goodness. Or we can think that if God is good, surely I've done something that has disqualified myself from that goodness and that God does not look at me at that one any longer. And so when you trace the words of Naomi, this is what she says in verse 13, the hand of the Lord is against me. 
And then verse 20, the Lord has made me empty. Verse 21, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. Verse 21, the Lord has brought calamity on me. Have you ever felt that way? That life was going along in a certain direction and then circumstances began to happen and the circumstances come as a result of the brokenness of the world. And as the circumstances mount, one circumstance upon the another, upon another, upon another, you begin to doubt the goodness of God. And you begin to think that His hand is against you. And that He is forcing you to become empty. And that He is dealing bitterly against you. And that He's testified against you. And that He's bringing in some way calamity on you. Most of us have felt that way at some point in our life. And if the story ends in chapter 1, there's only great sorrow and two bruised and broken women. But what the readers know, and what the writer knows, but what the characters cannot know, is that there is more to the story. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative with her husband, a worthy man of the clan of the Limelight, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of the Limelech. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Moab said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, don't go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men young man have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully, fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. In the meantime, Boaz said to her, Come here and, and eat some bread and dip your morsel into wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheep, and don't reproach her. And also pull out uh, from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about a heap of barley, about 22 liters of barley. And she took it up and went to the sea. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. 
So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabites said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. When you read chapter 2, verse 3 says, she happened to come across this field. Interesting how frequently that shows up in Scripture. It just so happened. And all the while, God is behind the scenes orchestrating and moving and sovereignly directing the path of people. But she just so happened upon this field. And it's a field of, of Boaz who shows up in the story. We see first the word Redeemer. First time we see the word Redeemer in the book of Ruth, which will show up for us in, a little bit later in the book. But he's a generous landowner. And what Ruth is doing is in accord with what is taught in the Old Testament, way back in what we'll call, respectfully, the boring books of the Old Testament, like Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Back in there it said, okay, when you're um, harvesting a field, don't harvest all the way to the edges. Leave the edges, leave the corners so that those who are, uh, who are poor can come to the field and they can take some of what's on the edges and they'll be able to have food, they'll be able to work for it, retain their dignity, and but they'll have what they need, and so leave it that way. And so Boaz is a landowner who followed after the Lord. That's what he did. But Ruth comes along, and he, he's talking. He said, well, you know what? Let's, let's do this, guys. Instead of just leaving what's up the edge of the field, when y'all harvest some, just kind of drop some out of the way so Ruth can come along and pick this up, and she'll have a little more to, to eat. And so that's how it progresses. Interestingly, three times inside of Ruth chapter 2, the word favor shows up. Verse 2, verse 10, verse 13. And so, if you read this particular story, if they, if they come to the end of chapter 2, you see it as a turn of good fortune. Here is Naomi and Ruth in a hard way at the end of chapter 1. But somehow in chapter 2, God just kind of turned the tables and now there's some favor being shown to them. And so if you come to the end of chapter 2, you think, well, that is really good. Naomi and Ruth, they're being taken care of. Somebody's looking after them. It's a wonderful turn of good fortune. But what the readers know, and what the writer knows, but what the characters could not know is that there's more to the story. And so we go to chapter 3. Chapter 3 reads this way. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash that floor and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and cover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. She replied, All that you say, I'll do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother in law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
spread your wings over your servants, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after the young man, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. If there is a redeemer here, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, then do it. But if he is not going to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay on his feet until the morning. But arose before him, but one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then, he, then she went to the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will set up the matter today. Well, we just came through Hallmark season. <laughs> and uh, this will be a good thing for one. So here's a story that takes a twist. So in Romans in Ruth chapter 3, it's an unexpected proposal. There are a few things that are going on inside of the story that again we have to go back to the boring books of the Bible to figure out. And one of those is that Naomi mentions a redeemer. And actually it shows up 20 times inside of the book of Ruth and they don't always see it in the English if we were able to read it in the original languages. That would be something that would stick out uh, boldly to us. That the issue, the theme of a redeemer is what is central to the story of Ruth. But there was an Old Testament law back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, a, a law of redemption. And it was set up, it was kind of arcane, a little bit difficult to follow, a little bit difficult to understand, but in order to keep property within the family, a kinsman could redeem property or buy it back that had been lost, such as Elimelech had been when he went down to Moab. And the requirement was that this redeemer would have to be qualified, first of all. He'd have to be able to do this, and then he'd have to be willing to do that. And so Naomi mentions this to Ruth, that this would be strange and unusual, Ruth not being familiar with the Old Testament law. But Naomi mentions it to her, and so this begins this process. But there was another law from the boring books of the Old Testament, the law of the Leverite marriage. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. And in order to maintain the family line, a widow with no son could request that the next of kin marry her and carry on the family line. And the requirement there was that the man would take on the needs and take on the provision and take on that person, take on that lady. And so an appeal is made to these Old Testament things that seem when we're reading through, trying to read through the Bible in the year or however you might do it, and you get to those books and you think, wow, this is really, really difficult. And yet God is setting things in play 500 years before they come to fruition in the book of Ruth that have bearing, as we will see shortly, on what takes place in the future. And if we come to the end of chapter 3 and we read this, we think, oh my goodness, there's a blossoming love story. What a wonderful thing. And if that was the end of the book, that would be what we would come away with. But what the readers know, and what the writer knows, but what the characters cannot know, is that there's more to the story. Chapter 4. 
And Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, hey, turn aside, friend. Have a seat here. So he turned aside, and he sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Behind in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know it. For there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I can't redeem it. Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a matter of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Philip and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this, by this young woman. Here's full resolution. The circle makes comes all the way back around. And so here's a, uh, a mother, Naomi, who suffered much, and Ruth, who herself has suffered much, and went through the process of chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you end up in chapter 4, and now Ruth is going to be married to this generous landowner, and it's going to be just a wonderful time, and the elders of the city are happy about it, and they're congratulating Boaz and Ruth, and they're looking forward to what takes place. And there's more to come. Because at this point, at least, what the writer couldn't know, and what the characters of the story couldn't know, we can read. And it says in verse 13, So Boaz took, it, took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for the daughter-in-law who loves you. There's more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. If the story ends in verse 16, there's a grandmother who suffered much sorrow. She breathes a happy sound of relief that her sorrows have been mitigated. 
And what she could not know, because she passed away before this happened, the writer tags on at verse 17 that a son has been born to Naomi, and they named the son Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Naomi is long gone before David ever becomes king of Israel. But the writer knows that there's more to the story, so he tags the story with his genealogy. But even in the resolution that Naomi had, as much of a blessing as it was, there was no way for her to know that her great-great-grandson would be the great king of Israel. And all of this was set into play by a famine that took place in Ruth chapter 1. All of the sorrows were setting up and building for this particular process where Ruth becomes the great-great-grandmother of David. What Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, knew was sorrow that ended in a love story, the pleasure of a grandson. What the writer of Ruth knew was the greatness of the coming King David. But what the readers know, what we know, but what the writer of Ruth didn't know, and what the characters of the story cannot know, is that there's more to the story. Because when you leave the book of Ruth, you find at the end a genealogy there in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. But when we go over into the New Testament, and we start in some of those places of, of, of Matthew that we tend to skip across because they seem boring. It's all the so-and-so was the son of so-and-so and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. We find that the great King David, through that line, will come the great redeemer. And so we go to the book of Matthew and we find this, that 28 generations after David was born, there would be this family line. And Boaz was buying the debt of a poor woman and he was taking her in. But that was just a shadow of what was to come. The great redeemer, Jesus, who pays the debt of our sin, rescues us when we put our trust in him. He's the one who spreads his protection over sinners. And all the Moabites who were lost and all of us Moabites who are lost and destitute and abandoned, wandering out looking for hope. The result of the suffering and the sorrow is the building of God's kingdom. Because as you trace it all the way through, what is the result of the suffering that Naomi had? Is the coming of the eternal kingdom through Jesus. So here's a question. Who is the book of Ruth about? Is it about Naomi? Well, well yeah, it is about Naomi because, I mean, it starts off right at the very beginning of the book talking about Naomi and it traces her life and it sees what is going on in her world. And it talks about her sorrows, and it talks about her comfort, it talks about all of these things. But is it about Naomi? Well, yes, it is about Naomi, but, it, but it's also really about what comes over in Matthew chapter 1, where the great Redeemer, Jesus, is born, and He comes to die for the sins of mankind. And so all of her suffering and, and heartache finds its resolution in this kingdom of Christ, where Jesus is born and, and dies for sinners. So who's the book of Ruth about? Is, is it about Naomi? Yes, yes. But, but it's also about Jesus. Or is the book of Ruth about Ruth? It, it has her name. And of course it traces what's going on in her life. And yes, it is about Ruth. She doesn't get lost in everything that's going on in the chaos of the nation. 
God has his eye on her. And, but it's also about Jesus because that's where this book ultimately ends up. Is it about Boaz? Well, yeah, it's, it's about Boaz because he's the redeemer. He's kind of the shadow of what is to come in Jesus. But it's not really about Boaz, except it is about Boaz, but it's also about the great redeemer, Jesus. And how about you? The story of your life. Is it, is it about you? Well, yeah, yeah, it is about you because God made you. God formed you in your mother's womb and God has allowed certain things to come about in your life and it, it is absolutely about you but, but it's also about this eternal kingdom that comes through Jesus and how it finds its resolve in the end of time. So what is your life about and how will you get to the happily ever after? Well, there's a few things that we, we want to think about and one is this. In the middle of a world of confusion, and in the middle of God's universal plans, God never lose sight of individuals. It'd be easy to find ourselves in the book of Judges and think that God is just going around judging people and that everybody gets caught by the crossfire. But God has individual concern for each of us. The second thing is we find our significance in His story. All of our kingdoms, every kingdom, will ultimately crumble. But God invites us into His everlasting kingdom through what Jesus has done. Three, God's storyline is the story of redemption. Whether we play Naomi, or whether we play Ruth, or whether we play Boaz, or whether we play David, all of that is God's prerogative. We play our part. We remain faithful to the task that God has given us, but it's God's prerogative to work out with Fourthly, we, we can never interpret what we see as the final assessment. You could stop this story almost anywhere along the way and never actually get to Christ. And if we stop our lives or we, we try to examine our life right now in light of what is going on with the circumstances that we have, we're almost always going to come up with the wrong picture. We have to let this full story play out. We don't know why certain things happen in the book of Ruth. We do know the results of what happened in the book of Ruth. You've heard this phrase, God works in mysterious ways. It comes from a poem written by William Cowper. It goes this way. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perfect. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds are so much dread, are bent with mercy and shall bring the blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scam is work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What I hope to do this morning is say, I don't know where you are in your life. I do know that life throws a lot of mess at us. And if we're not careful, as I said earlier, it will dislodge us from believing that God is good. And it will make us think that God is against us. 
But what God is developing inside of everything that goes on is the building of His kingdom. So we can do two things when we can pray that the Lord will make us full of faith in Him. Jesus is talking to His disciples in John chapter 13, and He says, You do not realize right now what I am doing, but later you will understand. That's good to hold on to. And we don't understand what He's doing right now, but later we will understand. If we try to read the middle of our lives as if it's the end, we're surely going to end up disappointed. Secondly, we can pray that we be faithful to the task that we're given. God is at work. He will overcome the brokenness of the world for those who trust in His Son. There's a whole lot of delightful good in this world. But for the believer, happily ever after comes at the end of the story. And if we try to resolve a happily ever after in this life, we're almost always going to find ourselves in a difficult spot because it just doesn't resolve that way. God has designed it that in eternity the happily ever after will come. God is at work. Be patient. Be faithful. Be trusting. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I'll ask you to stand with me if you will and pray together. Lord, I thank you that you take care of feeble people like ourselves and you, you seek us and you find us and you call on us and you ask us to join your everlasting kingdom through what Jesus has done. So Lord, I pray that you would help us as we look at our lives not to judge them too quickly, not to discount your acts too swiftly. Help us to believe you to the end. Help us to remember that happily ever after what awaits us at the end of this life. And that you're zealous to bring that about, and you will do it by your great power. And I ask these things in Jesus' name.